Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kalyagin. It is the last show being recorded currently in 2022. You're going to be listening to this probably in 2023. It's going to be dropping January 1st. So Happy New Year, everybody. More importantly, Merry Christmas. I'm uh, in the Antiochian Church, so I already celebrated on the new calendar, December 25th, Western Christmas. So Merry Christmas to everybody that celebrated the Nativity, the birth of Christ. Dimitri, of course, a few more days till till he gets to celebrating, but it's it's good that we it's good that here on the show both the calendars are represented here. Yeah, we have a bit of diversity here, Conrad, in a way. We have both the new calendar and the old calendar represented. But of course, all of us Orthodox folks celebrate Easter on the same day, which we're looking forward to in twenty twenty three. And to all those on the old calendar, you know, keep keep the fast up, you know, the there's only about a week left of fasting and then Christmas is upon us, so looking forward to that. And of course today we'll most importantly we'll be having a Essentially, the podcast will be separated into, firstly, a news segment, and secondly, we'll kind of just cover the huge year that 2022 was and all the events that have taken place and, you know, the different things that were said and done. I think there's a lot to discuss here. And, you know, from our perspective, there's definitely been uh, some titanic and, you know, gigantic changes that have taken place so far. Oh, it's true. And, you know, we're both young, but I've been paying attention to geopolitics very seriously for, you know, at least six years now, and 2022 is... It's one of the it's the craziest one, you know. I dare say even crazier than 2016. So, I think, or even 2020 when COVID started, perhaps. So that's that's a lot. And I think, uh, with all that being said, we've got a lot to talk about: Cyprus, more Ukraine, Russia, Turkey, Syria. These are big things. So let's just kind of dive right into that. Um, I'm sure everyone is keeping up with our show. Closely saw what happened in Cyprus. Unfortunately, it wasn't the result that we wanted. It's not necessarily a huge, some of it was surprising, not a huge surprise, at least the initial vote results necessarily, but disappointing nonetheless. As anticipated, Metropolitan Athanasios, you know, destroyed and cleaned up, got, you know, a very high percentage of the vote. He got 35%, which was almost double the second place vote. Both of the second and third place finishers received 18% of the vote. And uh, below that, another Metropolitan uh, received... Uh, what did he receive? He received uh, 14% of the vote, and then Metropolitan Neofitos came fifth and received 10% of the vote. And still a good showing for Metropolitan Neofitos, but ultimately, after the election, many anticipated Metropolitan Athanasios to be appointed by the Synod. Unfortunately, Metropolitan George of Paphos, who barely came second, was made the Archbishop of Cyprus and is now acting as Archbishop of Cyprus. And he is, of all the candidates, he was the most pro uh, schismatics in Ukraine. He's the most pro-ecumenical patriarch. He is the least traditional, and he's expressed that already in a number of ways. We're, of course, praying for him and his success, and we're in no way saying that one should, you know, go into schism or disobey this bishop or anything like that. But it's, it is unfortunate, and there has been, there was politics involved, and we're gonna get into a little bit of that. But at the same time, you know, it's no, there's no reason to get too, you know, black-pilled about these kinds of church politics things, and despite Metropolitan Neophytos not not making the cut there. We're we're fairly confident that God has even bigger things planned for him. But with all that being said, we're gonna get a little bit there's some there's some interesting details surrounding all the election and everything as well. So Dimitri. Yeah, so I think most importantly, um Mitchpolton Neophytos, at least some some people online, some pundits, did comment on the fact that he didn't do too well in the election. They mentioned, well, perhaps the people of Cyprus have, you know, have taken a stance against his radical position on, say, COVID, the vaccines, some of the um, prophecies he was espousing and 
uh, you know, talking about from the Greek elders. So Metropolitan Neokritos was, of course, the candidate which me and Conrad supported heavily. We thought his his conservatism and as well as his you know adherence to church tradition very strong and very um very unbiased objective take on the whole Russia Ukraine issue as well was just what Cyprus needed for a sort of prolonged uh, I suppose vision and you know push towards the future and like of a an orthodox wholesomeness but in fact um, unfortunately we believe like for whatever reason Metropolitan uh, Georgios was elected and he is he is now the new Archbishop now Metropolitan Georgios and uh, Archbishop Georgios now of course as Conrad said we should pray for him but he had he was a very different sort of character he never stood up against of course the COVID regime never kind of uh, commented at all about the vaccine in fact he himself is a is a scientist by by profession I suppose um, a chemistry teacher in his own right. So, in fact, we have this sort of dichotomy. We have the most based red pill, um, I guess, candidate from the clergy, Metropolitan Neophytos, on one hand, who, you know, questions the efficacy of the vaccine, questions its uh, effectiveness as well as, you know, the actual morals behind it. And then you have, on the other hand, Metropolitan Georgios, who ends up taking the upper hand in the popular vote and you know he is uh, by all by all means a person a man of science so to speak and of course of course a clergyman in the same right uh and the last thing about metropolitan georgios i suppose just as a as a, for an introduction he was very much a he's a person of the status quo he he became a clergyman under the previous archbishop of cyprus so of course naturally one would think that he would follow the in the footsteps of his master and the person who has uh, you know kind of elected him to 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 the clergy in the first place all those years ago. No, it's true, and unfortunately, again, some people had said like, oh, he barely got ten, he got less, slightly less than ten percent of the vote. Cyprus has totally rejected Metropolitan Neophytos, but Metropolitan Neophytos is from an archdiocese, a, a metropolia right on the border with occupied Turkey. He had immense support in his archdiocese. It, it, again, metropolia, sorry there. It's confusing with the Greeks versus, you know, the more Slavic archdiocese structure here in America and how some of it goes. But Metropolitans, archbishops, in Cyprus, the archbishop is the head of the whole church and the Metropolitans are below him. But in fact, Metropolitan Neophytos, as said by many not at all conservative or traditional Cypriot newspapers, had in many ways shown he has great support. He does have influence in the Holy Synod. And one of the big takeaways was, again, Metropolitan Athanasios, far and away the second most traditional bishop in the running after Metropolitan Neophytos received almost 36% of the vote. Like, over a third of the entire vote went to him. And despite that, he was not at all chosen by the Synod. And I, I commented about this on Twitter and Telegram. Part of that as well has to do with, if Metropolitan Neophytos, for example, had come third, as we had perhaps anticipated he would, that would have put a lot more pressure on the Synod to elect Metropolitan Athanasios. Because two of the three nominees would have been ostensibly at least against the schismatics in Ukraine and more on the uh, traditional end of the spectrum. And they, of course, wouldn't want to elect Metropolitan Neophytos, so they would elect Metropolitan Athanasios and avoid sub-scrutiny. However, as we had mentioned in our previous episode, so much politicking and influence happened from the ecumenical patriarch, and I would say then co thus covertly from the U.S. State Department, to get the previously anti-schismatic Metropolitan Isaiah on board with the schismatics. And he then came third, and so now you had two pro-schismatic candidates versus the one ostensibly kind of in the middle candidate, Metropolitan Athanasios, who in many ways, perhaps for the election, had kind of centered his position. And then because of that, the Synod felt even more emboldened to just pick the very much establishment candidate, Metropolitan Georgios. And again, not to put too much uh, 
stock into this. It's not gone forward. I think that the Senate basically ignored it. But the mayor of uh, a large town in Cyprus, I forget the name of that, a town of 40,000 people had filed election integrity issues with this election, claiming that if this had been a political election, it would be an outrage and people just ignoring it because it's an ecclesial election. And unfortunately, I believe even about a third or even slightly less than a third of the eligible Orthodox voting population voted in this election, which does show that Cyprus has unfortunately shifted very cosmopolitan, very secular in recent years. But that's not to say that there isn't still hope. And as Dimitri mentioned, we had hoped the Metropolitan Neofitos had had a grander vision. But in many ways, Metropolitan Neofitos is, in fact, more free now to pursue his vision, which is evangelizing the north of Cyprus. And not to bring in any drama, but I had kind of gotten into a bit of a spat with Trisagion Films, which is a great YouTube channel. I, I love what they do. So no hate towards them or anything, but they were talking about their, one of their uh, main the people that operates their channel and their brand is Cypriot and talking about how in Cyprus people didn't like Metropolitan Yofitosa's anti-vax rhetoric and how they don't like his prophecies and it was scaring people. And he talked about how people thought that he was saying Turkey was going to invade, which I just think is so dishonest because as we've talked about on this show multiple times, he explicitly says that's not going to happen. Cyprus isn't even going to be affected by like major violence of the third world war. And he has a whole idea and he, I would even say, unlike a lot of members of the Greek patriarchs in Cyprus, Alexandria, Greece, is very enthusiastic about evangelizing to the Turks in the north. And everyone involved in the election, of course, is against the invasion, is against Turkish occupation, is against everything that that stands for. And, you know, the, the genocide and anti-Christianity that, you know, has come with all of that. But unlike, you know, Metropolitan Neofitos, a lot of them, it's really just more of a kind of Greek nationalism being very pro-Greek as opposed to having an actual desire to convert the world and bring even the enemies of the church into into the fold. And Metropolitan Yofitos, up there right on the border in Morfu, he has a great opportunity to continue that work. And even I've heard a vision to build a monastery on the other side and evangelize and spread the gospel to people who, even so recently, even in the 1970s, had participated in overt persecution of the church. Yeah, and this sort of stance that, you know, well, maybe Metropolitan Neopetos did not generate so many votes because of his radical conservatism and just the fact that most people in the modern world, well, you know, modern world, so to speak, in uh, brackets, has somehow, you know, they're not they're not prepared for this sort of radical orthodox position that, look, the world may enter into this uh, sort of age of calamity, especially as due to people's sin and, of course, war as well as, you know, the God testing people and especially sinners to sort of change their ways is is really like upon us. And, you know, this kind of at the we're kind of at this doorstep of, of great things to come. And, uh, you know, this I found similar sentiments, uh, of course, through interviews um, on Tsadgrad TV recently, where a Russian mother who went to a really high class school in Moscow City, frankly, said that one of her daughters who was about in seventh grade, about t- 10, 12 or 13 years of age, said that, well, she was giving a class presentation in, in the Russian language and talking about how her elder brother was a member of the uh, of the Russian military, and she was sent to the principal's office for bringing up the the war in Ukraine. This is in a Russian, like a Russian middle school as well, mind you, in Moscow. So even high class, a sort of bourgeoisie Russians are trying to somewhat avoid the topic of the war in Moscow, whereas. That same the, the interviewer did mention the fact that if you go to any town in Russia, for example. Um, you know, Donetsk or Lugansk, of course, or, uh, you know, for example, uh, Rostov or even some of the, some of the 
I guess now adjacent adjacent uh, cities uh, close to the Ukrainian conflict, the, the situation sort of changes. The people, their attitude towards the, uh, the towards the conflict, it becomes more patriotic. So there is this understanding that yeah, once a country becomes more capitalistic, more bourgeois, more uh, people become richer and more comfortable with life, there there drops off this need for sort of uh, understanding that look. You know, yes, we live in a peaceful time now, but things may get more drastic. People don't want to think about death, calamity, challenges in life. You know, the the need for preparing for tribulations really tribulations really falls away. Maybe this is the same attitude the Cypriots had now. After the, you know, there hasn't been a conflict with the Turks in maybe twenty plus years at this point. So all this sentiment towards you know, oh, these prophecies about you know the, the Greek the Greek conflict with the Turks in the future. From Elder Paisios, these things don't really interest the maybe the modern Cypriot. At least that's my opinion. Like a similar position to what maybe modern Russians have towards Ukraine. At least those in the big cities. Oh, it's definitely true. And that's not to say that there are many pious people in Cyprus. And many pious people in Cyprus that may have, for better or for worse, had the reasons why they didn't vote for Metropolitan Neopithos. But at the end of the day, it is impossible to say that this was not something where the powers that be involving the general conflict around us, the world war now, as our show is called, as well as the internal conflicts within the church, had their hands on the scale kind of of what was going on. And some people were saying they're very frustrated, like, why do you even put this to a vote if you're just going to pick the person that clearly didn't get the most votes? Like, just pick someone, you know, some were saying, like, the illusion of democracy is kind of funny and all of it. But because that's the way that the church has it right now, it's important to do everything you can in those situations to, uh, you know, make sure that the right person gets gets votes because people are going to be voting regardless. So, with all that being said, I think we can uh, maybe move away from Cyprus a little bit. So many people have talked about like the in all the stuff, the Russia Ukraine conflict and the church issue was the number one issue. All these Cypriot magazines had every archbishop's perspective on it, lambasting Metropolitan Athanasios as a pro-Russian because Russian. So many Russian pilgrims would go to some places in his. Metropolia that I guess he must be an agent of the Russian government because some some reason very silly stuff but they uh, they they were very much uh, drawing that line you know with Metropolitan Neofitos being pro-Russian more in the middle than like Metropolitan Athanasios Metropolitan Nikiforos they're calling them like total pro-Russian shills just because they in my hold the obviously true ecclesiological position that Constantinople can't issue tomos of autocephaly willy nilly whatever they want in other people's jurisdiction. But with all that being said, we're going to move towards Ukraine. A lot of things have happened since we last spoke about it. It's been two weeks. There's You probably all are tired of even hearing about Bakhmut, just wondering when it's going to be taken. But we've got some things to talk about that. Dimitri, anything anything you want to let us know? Yeah, so I think the recent development of Bakhmut has been sieged by the Russians for at least one and a half months now continuously. This city, of course, is at the crossroads of Donetsk and Lugansk, as you've probably heard on previous episodes. So it is very key for Ukrainians to hold it, as well as the Russians, because it opens this, I suppose, this gateway of opportunity to, um, you know, push t- towards the West and Ukrainian territories from any any sort of angle. Uh, at this point, Bakhmut, uh, of course, controls both the main roads from Lugansk and Donetsk westwards. So... And, and what's been happening in Bakhmut, essentially, Bakhmut's, uh, the involvement of the Russian military has been quite minimal. And you may say, well, how does that work if there's fighting going? Well, it's not the official Russian army that is fighting in Bakhmut at the moment. It is the mercenary organization, of course, led by Russians and mostly, you know, employing Russians called Wagner. And you've probably heard about Wagner, named after the famous German composer. This, uh, as reported by a recent um, American military chief, this organization has risen in its like 
its population, I suppose, has increased from a mere 3,600 personnel in 2018 to at least, well, allegedly at least 50,000. Well, mind you, 50,000 armed forces in a mercenary group, that is a lot of folks. But, you know, this is, of course, American sources. And Russians are, frankly, very interestingly, uh, republishing this news article. So the Americans are saying, well, Wagner has up to 50,000 personnel. And Russians are like, yes, of course it does. And they're all republishing this news. And I guess we do have to mention that 50,000 is... Quite a sizable force, frankly. Like we recall earlier this year in October when Russians began the mobilization and they said, well, we're going to recruit 300,000 personnel to join the military and aid in the special military operation. Now, 50,000, that's like quite a sizable percentage of that. And uh, so Wagner has been effectively pushed back. Uh, They've been really pushing hard in Bakhmut. And yeah, of course, recently, uh, unfortunately uh, for them, they've been kind of uh, ousted. The Ukrainians have been shoving them back and they're, They've kind of lost any gains they've made in the last fortnight or even month, I'd say. And what, what's their first reaction? What's the reaction of Wagner is to blame the Russian military leadership, Gerasimov Valeri, who is the chief of staff of the Russian military, as well as Dmitry Medvedev, the former president of Russia, who Yevgeny Prigozhin publicly said that you know, these people advocating for the special military operation are actually not giving us weapons, not giving us tactical, um, you know, that tactical equipment for which we could actually fight the Ukrainians. So Yevgeny Prigozhin, the CEO of Wagner, he's the he's the guy who actually runs the mil- the mercenary organization, is blaming the Russian the Russian politicians behind the scenes. It's very interesting. Mind you, Putin is never the target of any criticism in, in these sort of uh, you know debates. Even when Kadyrov, the leader of the Chechen Republic, makes any anti you know anti military statements, he's always specifically targeting them at certain individuals, but never Putin. Putin is kind of like, and for better or for worse, the uh, the man who brings the whole operation together and all these different various factions. I think we can both agree on that. No, it's true. And then when it comes to Bakhmut as well. We know Surovikin, when he was appointed earlier, a few months back, he talked about, as, as you know, being in charge of the entire special military operation. He talked about this is not a war of, you know, dramatic town seizures of, you know, big arrow offensives and whatnot. This is a war of attrition. We're demilitarizing Ukraine. And I think if you go to the Wikipedia page for the Battle of Bakhmut, it's like, I don't know, like 18, I'm sure I'm using the wrong number, but it's like 18 battalions or something of Ukrainian military versus like, and it just has like, Wagner, DPR militia, Russian armed forces on the other side. And then it's like, like they're pouring like thousands and tens of thousands of troops into Bakhmut. And of course, Dmitry explained, of course, it's, it's somewhat strategic location, but a lot of people are like, why are they spending so much time defending this town that didn't even have a hundred thousand people in it before the war began? And there's, like Dmitry said, it has all this transportation importance, but even besides that, um, it, it's kind of become clear that if if Ukraine loses this, they're probably going to lose some kind of support from the West. Because if not, like Zelensky is clearly trying to draw this as a line and really hold some of those grounds that were gained in the Kharkov offensive earlier in the year. And I think there's some truth to be said that if this doesn't if this doesn't hold for them and that the Russians take it, which I think is inevitable, it might be, you know, it might again. We people say at the beginning of the end all the time, but that might be the last chance that that. But if that that might be the last chance for Kiev to get something that doesn't involve the fall of Kiev itself, let's put it that way. Yeah, and of course, the fall of Kiev, people might say, well, that's a bit exaggerated. Russian has no goal of taking Kiev, but no. The Russian foreign minister recently, Sergei Lavrov, does mention the fact that, look, if Zelensky and his government do not come to the um, 
you know, the table of diplomacy and, you know, to sort of work out a peace treaty. The only way to successfully demilitarize and, you know, he uses the word denazify again, Kiev and Ukraine is to, of course, take the capital itself, take Kiev. So Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, openly says this. And this is, you know, this has happened just in the last week at the end of December 2022. Again, um, it kind of kills any rhetoric from those folks, especially on the, say, the side that is anti-NATO that, you know, they were claiming, well, Russia, you know, Russia's going to sign a peace treaty. Russia's going to surrender its positions. It's going to give up the Netsk Lugansk. It's going to give up, you know, Kherson and all those regions to Ukraine. But no, seemingly... At the end of 2022, the the year is ending on this position that no, Russia is actually it's willing to come to the negotiating table, but only on actually proper terms which will benefit the Russian people and the Russian populace of Ukraine. Russia will not be having any of this genocidal rhetoric which Zelensky recently pushed in his 45-minute speech between Christmas and New Year's, which I think it's worthy of mentioning as well. Russia is not going to have you know, the sort of cultural genocide of the Russian language where Russian statues are destroyed, sculptures are eroded, you know, graveyards are raided. And, of course, the Russian language is, you know, removed from any school curriculums at all, even even as an elective unit in Ukrainian high schools. You know, this, this sort of position of Russia, of Lavrov, is very admirable, at least. You know, giving Zelensky and his government this ultimatum that, look, if you guys will not come to the negotiating table on, you know, decent, actually reasonable terms, we will be... Taking it further, we will be taking Kiev as we promised in February 2022. Well, and Putin has shed a little more light on what some might call the goal of the special military operation. And he talks more about you. And it's nothing that he hasn't maybe hinted at before, but he explicitly is talking about reunifying the Russian people. And that uh, clearly involves effectively in the next 10 years, I would say, having Belarus and then as many people as desire in Ukraine, which they would view as a solid plurality of the population in some regard, to be in Russia. I think that's what that means. And some would argue that this has, that because of the context, this also includes certain parts of Kazakhstan. I have no idea. Some people would say, I've heard a lot of talk about Belarus, most of Ukraine, excluding the Western portion, and then Russified Northern Kazakhstan being kind of the current Putin vision of a reunified Russia that's neither here nor there necessarily, but it seems that as of now, Putin has realized that if Zelensky is literally still talking about retaking Crimea, we need to ramp up the rhetoric a little bit or else we're really not going to get anywhere if, besides just a total total collapse of everything in Ukraine. And the Russians still don't want that. The Russians really have no interest in ruling over ruins. I guarantee you they're not happy about how much they're having to rebuild Mariupol. They wish that that didn't have to happen. And with all that, it seems that the Russians are extending that they realize that they're not ever going to be able to govern western ukraine and it seems that they're kind of extending certain pokes and olive branches towards poland and hungary to actually get involved which is something we've of course talked about on this show since the beginning funny enough putin does mention you know western ukraine and Galicina or Galicia, which, you know, is the western portion of Ukraine, Ukraine involving Lvov as well. So that particular region of Ukraine, uh, I guess through historical means has lost its Russianness over the last maybe 600 years. By Russianness, I mean Russian culture was very much, uh, politicized and there was a lot of the uh, Lithuanian influx over, over the period when Poland actually controlled those lands. This is going back 500, 600 years. So, of course, these regions are probably the least Russian of any Ukraine, and even people from Western Ukraine, such as some of my personal friends, they, they don't speak Russian at all, frankly. They only speak Ukrainian, which is unheard of. Everybody in Kiev knows Russian, including Zelensky at one point spoke Russian better than he spoke Ukrainian. 
Ukrainian. So Russian very much is not just a similar language to Ukrainian, but also it is kind of like, well, if you know, if you know, kind of, it's kind of similar to how Germans and French and French people, you know, they, they do huge language exchanges, you know, French students uh, learn German, German students learn French, but it's even closer than that because the language is mutually understandable. And like, yeah, there's a complete link there. Of course, not just historically, but also linguistically. Now, as as, as far as Galicina goes, uh, Putin does mention in a speech that, look, the Russian Empire, one mistake it did make was when it, you know, dissected Poland between Austria-Hungary, Prussia, and Russia. Uh, it did, it kind of took a large chunk of Poland and connected it to these Western Ukrainian areas. And he says these areas are the least Russian. Putin admits this recently in his uh, 21st of December speech, which... I think I think is worthy of listening to subtitles because Putin does give his kind of like end of year perspective on on the future, and he does say, "Look, the Russian Empire." Which Putin isn't the biggest fan of the Russian Empire. Like in his recent speech, in his past speeches, he did criticize it a lot. But here, his only criticism seems to be that, "Look, the Russian Empire didn't realize in its time, oh, you know, two hundred years ago, that look." These Western Ukrainians are actually incredibly anti-Russian, and they they do hold this internal anti-Russian sentiment. You know, probably fed by Western propaganda, even from centuries ago, but still. And the fact that these people live within the same borders as us, it does cause this sort of internal conflict. So Conrad is completely right that you know whatever the future holds for Ukraine, there will be great debate over what happens in those Western regions. Should they retain some sort of political um, or quasi-cultural independence, or should they join maybe a country like Poland as a sort of federal entity? Who knows? Oh, it's extremely interesting. And at the beginning of the conflict, people were talking about this, and people were like, this is LARP map stuff, like this is nonsense. And yet here we are still talking about it, very relevant. And even uh, Viktor Orban himself in Hungary, he's given recent speeches about how Hungarians are oppressed all over. There's no Hungarian autonomy, I think, except for Serbia. Serbia has an autonomous Hungarian region, but every other area surrounding Hungary, uh, whether it's Romania, Slovakia, Ukraine, Romania, Orban and his very popular nationalist party seem to be pushing the rhetoric that those Hungarians are oppressed and they kind of it would benefit them to be reunited with their homeland. Of course, we talked about him wearing the Greater Hungary scarf and his foreign minister, you know, tweeting out to the Transcarpathian Hungarians that help is on the way and these sorts of things. There are, of course, hundreds of thousands of Hungarians in the Transcarpathia region of Ukraine. They make up plural plurality of the population in a few areas. And so with Poland and Hungary kind of representing the opposite end of the spectrum of pro-Russian and anti-Russian members of NATO and the European Union, it seems that Russia is kind of, with Putin's historical kind of talk, he was kind of showing Poland, like, look, we don't actually, you convinced all your people that we, like, fundamentally despise the existence of Poland and don't want that to happen, but that's not true, and I'm saying this, and I'm extending you this kind of idea that you can that you can kind of go in there. And because from Russia's perspective, there's no difference between Poland controlling Lvov and Ukraine controlling Lvov. It's the same at this point. And at this point, Russia would kind of benefit from, at this point, it seems that Russia would benefit from just disrupting the general security architecture of Europe because the EU would have no way to, it is very much a concept that was made much past, much later after ideas of, you know, irredentism and reclaiming a population across other borders like that, that's something that the EU is against. Like you're supposed to not do any more of those things once you join the EU. So if Hungary and Poland take these opportunities, they're already sanctioned by the EU for their anti, you know, sodomite, anti LGBT kind of stuff. Is this going to be, could, would that be in further kind of domino in the collapse of the, the European Union? 
Yeah, I think I think it's also like a, a very positive development. Seeing Poland and Hungary, of course, developing their own national identities after the 1990s, after the fall of the, you know, sort sort of the Eastern Bloc USSR. It's it's very, I guess, in a way, they're showing they're showing the rest of Europe that look, we can still remain within the EU, but we can also, we can also follow our internal, uh, I guess, personal interests and sort of you know generate this cultural autonomy and cultural cultural individualism without you know crazy hyper multicultural immigration and other changes that the eu is almost forcing upon its neighboring countries i think one important thing is that zelensky seems to really ignore this particular fact he's claiming you know even recently in zelensky's 45 minute speech he does mention the fact that you know we we are striving to join the european union and and then right after that he mentions some world economic forum talking points such as ukraine is aiming towards you know becoming one of like completely sustainable by green energy and you know completely changing its economy from gas and fossil fuels to you know just these absurd talking points not even speaking about nuclear power or any actual reasonable alternatives towards fossil fuels like it's just it's really um zelensky of course at the end of the day is a puppet of western Western state, as well as globalists, not even, I wouldn't even say officially Western state sponsors, but actual globalist interests. And he does meet with these people. And, you know, uh, it's it's not just his, you know, particular reasonable rhetoric, which can be questioned here, I think. And there, let's just say, let's put it, put it I guess, uh, to rest. This recent speech of Zelensky is not, at least at this point, at the end of December, it's not being... Um, listened to by Western media sources, they're ignoring it because, in effect, and I don't want to use any, uh, I don't want to sound cliche here, but it was very Hitler-esque in a way. Zelensky stands up in Parliament and for 45 minutes talks about the great independent Ukraine and the fact that Russians will be pushed out of Crimea, pushed out of Donetsk, Lugansk, that Ukraine will be great independent, it'll use green energy, Ukrainian language will dominate, the Russian church will be suppressed. So he doubles down on the fact that the Russian church in Ukraine, which, mind you, 70% of the population follow that particular church and denomination and religion. Zelensky says that they, they are morally corrupt and they will be shut down. So he doubles down on the banning of the, um, you know, the particular autonomous, autonomous, uh, branch of the Russian Orthodox church in Ukraine. And this is, of course, a religious persecution at its best. So Zelensky is this, uh, sort of criminal character who recently made a statement. It's absolutely clear and try to, just as an experiment, Google Zelensky speech, rather, you know, end of December 2022. See if anything comes up. If you type in Zelensky speech 2022, you won't find the result on the first page. This recent speech of his has not been translated into English, at least not at the time of this recording. So it does seem like Western media sources, or at least media sources which are liberal progressive, are trying to shut down this particular, um, you know, statement by Zelensky that, look, Ukraine is this great superpower that's going to fight russia till the very end and we're willing to spill all this blood and yeah of course he mentions the fact that electricity is down and ukrainians are willing to live without electricity and that's that's green alternative like it's completely nutty stuff this guy is a clown and of course and his rulership of ukraine has caused more disasters and tragedies than any any other president in ukrainian history i'd say now it's truly it's insane and of course you make a good point that there's no there's no benefit that the west gets from covering the latest speech and it, it, it's it's evidence that Zelensky's facing trouble at home. That he needs to be giving these big, these big kind of displays of of Ukrainian nationalism and anti-Russian sentiment. And it's it's horrible. I mean, I believe they forcibly renamed the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is the the church that's in communion underneath the Russian Orthodox Church, the largest and oldest Orthodox, church, the only Orthodox Church in the country, the church that was that has been there since you know the baptism of the Rus by 
St. Vladimir, all this is the Orthodox Church in Kiev, not the fake schismatic one established, you know, a few years ago. And not only has the name forcibly been changed, it's been basically banned. There's so many more videos of priests being assaulted. The amount of SBU, like flex pictures in front of random monasteries is just insane. They've basically visited everyone at this point, every parish as well. And so we encourage everybody, please pray for the church. And while we've mentioned before, it seems that because of all of this, you know, the Ukrainian church has declared, you know, some senses of autonomy and these other things to distance itself from Russia in the eyes of, you know, the authorities who are persecuting them. But in, in spite of all that, Patriarch Kirill and uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, you know, in Moscow, they've very much stated their continued support for the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Uh, I believe Patriarch Kirill told clerics to not comment on, like, the canonical status of Metropolitan Onufri and the UOC because of the persecution they're facing and how hard it is. And they've, uh, what is it he says, uh, Patriarch Kirill says, we issued a statement to express support for the bishops, clerics, monastics, and laity who are striving to preserve the unity and canonical structure of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, even in the current difficult circumstances. And then he goes on to say that we're going to do everything we can to bring international attention to just the horrible things going on to you know, people just trying to worship God and worship Jesus and Ukraine in the canonical Orthodox fashion. And we've, we've talked about this on almost every episode. It keeps getting worse. And it seems that, like we've said, though, this kind of desperation from Zelensky and they're going after it, it definitely is a sign of, of total potential collapse, both whether it's from his regime to a possible replacement, whether it's uh, Zeluzhny or some of the other military puppets the U.S. has in there, or just, you know, final you know, total collapse, and then the Russians would be able to exert hard or soft, you know, whether they actually take Kiev or they just get a guy that they have through their more covert sources. That's something that seems to be getting closer and closer. Yeah, I think Patriot Kirill's recent speech has been incredibly uh, humble, and of course he totally understands the difficult position of Metropolitan Onufri and all the Ukrainian slash Russian clergymen in the Ukraine at the moment. They are under persecution, huge coercion and pressure. So some of their more I guess uh, implicit anti-Russian statements, right, can be taken with a huge grain of salt, as we've mentioned on previous episodes. Metropolitan Onufri is in a very difficult position. Patriarch Kirill and the leadership of the Russian church at home in Moscow and other places around Russia, they do understand that. And, you know, I'm very glad, actually, that, you know, Patriarch Kirill asks everybody not to not to panic, that, you know, the real problem here is, of course, the war itself and the conflict and the actual persecution that's going on, not the statements which are forced out of passion, desperation, and, and not just that, and simply uh, people despairing and trying to find ways to stop these Ukrainian federal agents from literally infiltrating, searching searching their um, searching their offices, raiding these, you know, these churches, these uh, church halls, you know, just affecting the worship of, you know, Christian people who just want to worship Christ, the saints, Mary, the mother of God, and, you know, just participate in liturgy. And of course, this is during Christmas as well. So it adds that extra level of, well, we're going to just exert this power of, you know, anti-Christianity during this uh, holy, holy period of the end of the year. So that needs to be mentioned. And of course, Zelensky, uh, as Conrad mentioned, he didn't he didn't begin this persecution early on in the conflict. He even, in a way, tried to invoke the power of Christianity to fight back, say, the Russian special military or, or operation. You recall in April 2022, Zelensky actually appears in an Orthodox church, a Ukrainian one, and he does mention that, look, uh, he mentioned that this is a great feast day. He doesn't actually say Christ is risen because, you know, for him, it would probably be uh, against his personal religion if he 
has one um so he but he does give this sort of patriotic speech for a minute and a half in a in a in a christian church saying that look this is a great feast day i hope it unites the people this and that political statement of sorts now the question is will zelensky give such a speech on the 7th of january inside a christian church again i kind of doubt it and as well coming up to easter in 2023 again i think i believe it's on the 12th or 26th of april 2023 will zelensky be giving any more speeches inside of christian churches after this you know sort of age of persecution and prosecution of Christianity. Like, I think that stands to, stands to be in question here. Well, no, we'll be looking out for what Putin and Lavrov have to say on, you know, January 6th, 7th, you know, old calendar Christmas time as well. But with all of that being said, you were just talking a lot about both Ukrainian and Russian society. People have talked a lot about this latest uh, military industrial commission, Medvedev's appointment to it, and then increases in Russia's spending on the military. Before we kind of move away from this conflict, I want to get your thoughts on on that and how you think that's going to affect the general conflict and whether or not Russia's... It seems to me that Russia's generally slowly but surely gearing up towards a war economy. Yeah, so recently, just a day after Christmas, on the 26th of December, or the day of, you know, Western Christmas, 26th of December, Putin, of course, announces that he is uh, naming Dmitry Medvedev, the former president of Russia, uh, the chief of the military industrial commission, this new sort of military organization. I guess you can call it a the birth of the new or the, you know, the improvement of the military industrial complex in Russia. So as well as the Russian military budget it has been announced to be increased in the next coming years, which, of course, what does this speak for the Russian people? Well, I think militarily Russia has always been the second greatest military since uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union. And Russia, one thing it has inherited from the Soviets um, has been it, this military, I guess, regime. That's one thing the Yeltsin, you know, the Yeltsin period of the 90s didn't actually reform and didn't destroy it entirely. So Russia did inherit this great military from the Soviet Union, from the you know, period of the Red Army. Now, what's interesting is Dmitry Medvedev recently... I mean, 10 years ago, he was known as a great liberal in Russia. He was the guy pushing, he was a guy, you know, importing smartphones and iPhones. He was like mucking around. He was investing into nanotechnology and all this weird, goofy stuff and, you know, space exploration and all this really bizarre kind of almost money laundering like schemes in the 2011, uh, 2010 period. And of course, now Dmitry Medvedev, at least recently, you could follow him on Telegram. He's been posting some incredibly patriotic anti-Ukrainian as well as pro-Russian statements. He's been pushing, he's been probably the greatest advocate for the special military operation since its um, onset. He's been, you know, he said even more radical things than Putin, or I would want to say even Kadyrov. He's pretty much, uh, uh, how would I say it in Russian, on Piriplyonovsiach. So he kind of really took it to took it to this next degree, and now I guess this uh, he's been given this particular post of, you know, I guess the head of the the, the deputy chairman of the Military Special Industrial Commission, which uh, I guess we'll see exactly when the actual paperwork comes out, what this military commission will take take, take itself upon. I, I'm personally of the understanding that this commission will prepare perhaps for a second great mobilization, which may take place around middle of 2023, probably around the summertime. So and also to kind of reorganize and keep everybody in check now that Russia has entered into this phase of, well, almost open confrontation with the West, at least definitely into a Cold War 2.0 world war sort of stage. Now that Russia, Russia needs to kind of change its outlook on, 
on you know military conflict it's no no more of these as we mentioned on former episodes no more of this like separate small brigades operating like you know kind of in a disconnected fashion no the rebuilding of this red army the rebuilding of the this russian imperial military force has begun i think full force in 2022 and dmitry medvedev seems to be the first honorary head of this uh engagement and you know we'll be looking for any developments on this front no and this also comes alongside china again china hasn't done something like say we support the special military operation, but they very much like maintain neutrality and maintained positive relations with Russia and are discussing now with Russia, even expanding more Yuan uh, ruble direct trade. I believe Putin and Xi recently had a video conference where Putin expressed a strong desire to have Xi come to Moscow and Xi didn't object to that in any way. So perhaps in the next quarter, we could see a maybe a Xi Putin summit, which would, Fully, I mean, it's already kind of cemented, but it seems that China is very much all in with what Russia is doing because they even, uh, I believe they sent a ship to Guam. They've been buzzing U.S. planes with their warplanes more aggressively than ever. And North Korea has also been acting very aggressive, shooting down even South Korean planes, sending missiles over Japan, all these things. So China and the, and the non-Western aligned Sinosphere is very much aligning with Russia. And China has a vested interest, of course, in supporting the geopolitical idea of re-territorialization in Ukraine because it would very much legitimize their impending, you know, reunification with Taiwan. And I think that's that's very important because a lot of times you can see Western media very much trying to all like I was reading this, I believe, in Cyprus Mail, which is a, you know, left leaning Cypriot newspaper talking about they, they believe that the Russian operation is totally failing and they try to paint this picture that Xi is like afraid of appearing too close with Putin. But if you look at just what's happening economically and um, based on currency and stuff, it's, it's the greatest realignment since the Cold War, objectively speaking. So I think just because China is trying to lay low, they're facing a lot of internal issues right now. The U.S. is really, really exploiting the COVID thing. So China, they don't have, in some ways, they have less liberty than Russia to act and to make statements. So I think people need to keep that in mind. Yeah, of course. Um, as we mentioned, maybe a couple months ago, like just the fact that China has essentially seen this as an opportunity, not just to investigate in a military sense what modern warfare looks like and, you know, which particular avenue to develop. I think definitely drone warfare and great artillery, you know, artillery developments are currently ongoing in China, but also just the fact that economically speaking, exactly what power does the West have to sanction a country into the Stone Age, so to speak, as they wish they would, they could have done to Russia. And the power is, uh, frankly, it's not that strong. Like, we've never seen sanctions of this kind on Russia since, you know, maybe the mid-2010 period when, you know, Russia began sanctioning all these liberal organizations and all those controversies back then during the third term of Putin. But this, of course, uh, speaks greatly to the fact that, well, China, the Chinese economy is a lot more powerful than the Russian one and a lot more well-connected. So if China does seek, say, to invade Taiwan or to sort of – or even to reintegrate itself with Taiwan, maybe through forceful or some sort of powerful diplomatic measures, is there anything that the West can actually do? Is there anything that countries you know, belonging to the United States, the Commonwealth of you know, Great Britain or the European Union, can they do anything to stop that? And the answer is most likely no. And Xi Jinping understands this. And yeah, of course, he's moving with adamant determination. And of course, uh, some developments on the North Korean front as well. Uh, Kim Jong-un just absolutely you know, being a baller in the, the year of 2022 after, of course, his Great meetings with Trump, you know, prior to the Biden presidency. This is, I guess, the second, the second big outing of Kim Jong Un as this independent decision maker. Like he, he simply 
doing what he wants and of course flexing North Korea's military muscle, not afraid of Western, you know, Western sort of threats at all. I think that's sort of a really good thing to just discuss, just the fact that Kim Jong un and North Korea has kind of risen to risen to the task of like absolutely dismantling Biden's image of any sort of foreign political expert of some sort. Like, because there's the idea that Biden's been in politics for 40, 50 years. And yeah, he participated in some some small diplomatic, you know, meetings uh, over the decades, especially in the 80s. But people like Kim Jong-un have really taken that apart. And of course, him dealing with somebody like Donald Trump, who's a, a businessman with almost no political experience, you know, in 2017 and 18, it just shows that, look, uh, you know, real powerful leaders of Asia, they do not take Biden seriously. Yeah, I mean, I think in so many ways, we're just seeing unipolarity, multipolarity. Everyone hears these words all the time, but we're just seeing in real time the diplomatic, the financial, and the cultural collapse of these institutions in the West and these kind of, this empire. And eventually, I think we're going to see the military collapse. And this is a bit controversial in some ways, due to a lot of ways in increased diversity, decline, and in engineering um, intellectual capability, all sorts of things. Jim Jatchis has talked about this as well as others. I don't think that NATO and the U.S. are actually as capable of, you know, running a clean sweep on the Russian military in a direct confrontation as they think. And I'm not talking about nuclear weapons or whatever people say. I'm talking about conventional on-the-ground warfare. And because of that, I think if you factor in China, it's 100% a victory for the non-NATO-aligned bloc. And that, and I think that's one of the big things people. It would explain actually a lot of the, a lot of the behavior because. At, at a certain level, we're going to reach a point where if the U.S. went into Iraq, why have they not gone into Ukraine? And the only answer is fundamental decline. Yeah, that's right. I think especially most most people, when they talk about the U.S. military, they speak about the Navy in particular and just the fact that these aircraft carriers are unmatched on the seas. You know, no other country has as many aircraft carriers or even naval vessels as the U.S. But where have we seen these naval vessels shine recently? I think only, you could say only in one Iraq and two Yugoslavia NATO when they, you know they were they were present there on the, during the bombardment in the nineties. So we've only seen we can say two particular areas. And mind you, these aircraft carriers they take so much maintenance. They are essentially cities on the sea. A lot of people think they're just like large boats. No, they're essentially they're essentially big. Um, these these gigantic ships which require thousands of people to maintain and build and the US economy going into a recession in twenty twenty two, I think it's very obvious to everybody can the US maintain such a powerful navy during a recession when the US dollar of course slightly drops in value or even the possibility of the US dollar dropping in value, just that fear, I I think it's this is all a looming tragedy for the United States military. And yes, Conrad was completely right. Why hasn't the U.S. at least even entered into Western Ukraine, at least to secure some of the supplies of arms which they're sending into Ukraine? And even some of these mercenary bases, like they've, they've not armed them at all. You know, kind of, yeah, they're sending teachers to teach Ukrainian, Spetsnaz and Ukrainian, you know, special, special forces. But beyond these teachers, we don't see any official, any official United States, you know, on the ground forces there. And, you know, I think what the reason is because the United States is no longer ready for an up upfront conflict. I think, and you know, I, I guess the primary evidence for that would be the fact that the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan almost without, without even setting a sort of status quo to remain there after their departure. I think that's evidence that look, they weren't willing to remain in Afghanistan any longer. That certain powers were exerted, and you know, and now their capacity is diminished, and you know, the capacity of the U.S. military unfortunately is in decline. Look, the U.S. Navy is 62% non-Hispanic white. 
The Army is 54% non-Hispanic white. We know that they've had trouble meeting their recruitment goals. Israel recently downed all their F-35s because so many in the U.S. are falling apart and failing. This is There's just so many points of evidence that the U.S. military is is just not what it used to be. And we have absolutely no frame of reference for how this diverse, funky military led by, you know, Mark Milley, who wants to investigate white rage. We have no idea exactly how this military would interact with a, a, a not diverse Russian military, a not diverse Chinese military, or a coalition of these forces. Even among the Russian forces, we were talking about this before we started recording, Russia have these distinct groupings and uh, command structures that within them are very unified and what you would say not diverse between the Chechen faction, you know, PMC Wagner, Wagner, uh, the Donbass militias and the Russian military, which those two are probably the most integrated again at this point. But this is how you run an imperial army, not let's, you know, demoralize the majority, elevate the minority, and then hope that it all works out while doing the same in our engineering department and hope they also make good missiles and stuff. Yeah, that's right. I think it's important to understand the, the Russian military at the moment. Yes, Russia is an incredibly multicultural country, but they do have these pockets of concentrated, um, you know, concentrated, not diversity, but actually like, uh, you know, this uh, identity. So you have the Chechen particular military divisions and brigades, which are 99% Chechen and, you know, the 99% of them worship Islam. Uh, Muslim and you know they worship Allah and they adhere to the tenets of Islam at least those that the Chechen people generally practice and so we have this these groupings of people and you know they're not all motivated by religion for example PMC Wagner the mercenary group we spoke about earlier with apparently 50,000 members they're mostly probably motivated by perhaps not patriotism but probably just being cool and like being considered this epic, you know, G.I. Joe type force, which is motivated by maybe a larger income than the Russian military can provide. So perhaps money is the motivator, but they aren't under any illusion that it isn't money. So there isn't like a fake patriotism that Wagner stand up to. But the Russian military, of course, like the particular Spetsnaz and some of these other like small organization of elite forces inside Russia, and even Donbass and Donetsk, like Donetsk Lugansk, how could, how, how could these forces have upkept such solidarity over eight years for with almost no support from Russia except, you know, humanitarian donations with almost no equipment. Well it's because they actually are united around the idea that Russian culture is is this particular value that they need to uphold against this onslaught of Western degeneracy and of course the Ukrainian cultural genocide which was ongoing um, you know, for the last thirty years at least, and of course it's ongoing now and Zelensky keeps pushing it. So these particular groupings in the Russian military, in the coming Russian imperial uh, army, are motivated by various different things. I think, of course, the majority of the Russian army, as we saw with the participation of the Russian bishops and the clergymen, are Russian Orthodox, and Orthodoxy uh, stands up against all the de- de- degeneracy pushed by Zelensky, pushed by even, I would say, even the United States Army. Like Conrad mentioned, the fact that the U.S. military is, of course, uh, you know, it it is incredibly powerful to this day. Yes, it perhaps isn't a diminished state, but what exactly unites these diverse and multicultural troops? Is it Protestantism? Is it Catholicism? Is it this belief in uh, you know the founding fathers and the Constitution? What Constitution? The one that you know Biden and some of his cronies are constantly encroaching upon. Like the question arises: like what do you think would keep 
you know, troops more united, Orthodox, actual Christianity, attending liturgy, or this idea that, well, we have to uphold this document, you know, given to us by our founders 250 years ago, which the current leadership of my country hates, which Biden, Kamala Harris always speak about the fact that the Constitution is outdated and needs to be changed. Like, these things need to be taken into consideration. And I think, mind you, Chinese analysts are sitting there, they're watching and that's why they're building a strong national identity on similar to what Russia is doing at the moment. They are not copying the United States multicultural model. They are copying a unified imperial Russian model at the moment. Oh, it's true. And I'm very much looking forward to, you know, the next decade of Russian patriotic media that I'm sure will have no shortage of, of, of stories and recreations and, you know, great films based on patriots, you know, like Givi and Motorola or people, unknown heroes that are being made right now in the Donbass region. And these, you know, these, these are the kinds of events that shape, that shape geopolitics and geography and ethnography for generations to come. I mean, the, the Donbass region could be a warrior cast of, in the, in the growing Russian empire for multiple generations now because of this, because for no other reason than they had to be for eight years before the Russians came to help. And with all that being said, I think we could talk about Russia and the Russian military forever. Before we move on to Turkey and Syria and some crazy stuff going on there, uh, we're going to go a little bit eastward uh, with with some friends of ours who also went eastward. Our favorite, our favorite neo Nazis, uh, the Azov Battalion. They went on a little trip to Israel, which I think is a bit funny for obvious reasons. But we, there's a video of them on Twitter, you know, dancing, you know, in the circle at the, you know, the, in a very stereotypically Jewish fashion. And there was even an article, and they did an interview one of the leaders of Azov who was in Mariupol fighting where at that point there were also a lot of atrocities committed there, of course, as of not just considered military combatants to Russia. These are, you know, terrorists. They're part of the goal of the special military operation is to eliminate, uh, you know, these groups of people. But uh, the leader of the Azov regiment said, Mariupol is our Masada. Masada, of course, being a very well-known kind of holy, it's a national park in, in the Holy Land, and it's a very, you know, well-known place for, for people in Israel. And it's just very ironic in this, just, of course, Azov from the beginning, despite being, you know, anti-Semitic neo-Nazis, whatever, were funded by, you know, Jewish uh, billionaires who had vested interest in disrupting uh, a Russian-influenced Ukraine and, you know, orchestrating things like the Maidan Revolution in 2014. And, of course, Azov, you know, big enemies of Putin. This is all very interesting, I think. At, at the same time, recently, Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, very ultra-Zionist, you know, leader of Israel, has come back into power after he was ousted a few years ago. And one of the first to congratulate him, of course, is Vladimir Putin. He very much, he's 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 wishing him well, which is ironic, despite the fact that some of his greatest enemies, the Azov Battalion, are are visiting uh, Israel. You know, they're not being, they're not, they're not being investigated. They're, the, the, these terrorists are allowed, allowed to go there, so... There, there's some other crazy alliances too that are that that, that this is that this conversation the segue is going to lead us into. But I think uh, Dimitri, what do you, what do you think about some of these 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 interesting bedfellows? Yeah, I think Putin just needs to understand that the uh, Orthodox Jewish community, regardless of what some of the members of the Jewish community in Russia believe, and you know their support for the special military operation, or even Putin and his United Russia Party, Putin needs to understand these people are not his friends. 
They're not, they're not for Assad. We've, you know, Israel has bombed Syria countless times. They're not pro-Russian. They take any opportunity to accuse former Russian leaders of anti-Semitic conduct, including, of course, even powerful figures from Russia's history, such as you know, Stalin, even Joseph Stalin. They accuse him of anti-Semitism because he, say, killed many Jewish Bolsheviks or executed them. And, you know, they bring up all these various examples, which even Putin, I'm sure, wasn't really aware of. But, you know, they, they present these challenges to Russian history, calling Russians anti-Semitic. So, the, the Jewish establishment, I guess, internationally speaking, even if a small portion of it is, I guess, util, in a utilitarian fashion, pro-Russian, um, generally, they are not pro-Russian history. They aren't pro-Russian culture. They certainly aren't pro-Orthodoxy, and that being Russian or Greek Orthodoxy, regardless of jurisdiction or, the, um, or a particular you know, local church denomination. They will target Orthodox Christianity and... Uh, you know, effect, essentially culturally subjugate, as we see in the Ukraine currently, right? Um, and of course, Igor Kolomoisky, right? The, one of the main, at least the face of the founding of Azov, the Azov Battalion, who were, you know, Azov recently visited Israel and danced around to Havana Nagila, as Conrad mentioned. But uh, Igor Kolomoisky is based in Dnipropetrovsk, or at the moment, the town, the city, actually, it's a gigantic city in Ukraine called Dnipro, has the largest Jewish community and not just that, it has a gigantic Jewish hotel called the Menorah. You can search up Menorah Dnipro in Google and just have a look. Uh, these sort of foundational Jewish communities in Ukraine are vehemently anti-Russian, anti-Orthodox anti Christian. They, the attempted cementing of Orthodox Jewry in Ukraine is kind of built as a counterweight to Russian Orthodoxy. So in a way, Zelensky, you know, shutting down the Orthodox Church is bringing, uh, is bringing to to light the idea that, look, Zelensky isn't touching the Orthodox Jewish community in any way, but he is negatively impacting the Russian Orthodox community. So, uh, And, of course, similar developments we can see in Israel at the moment, which I think Putin should be uh, should be very much aware of, and hopefully he is aware. I know he's probably busy reading, uh, you know, basically reports from what's going on on the Ukraine front, but there should be some awareness given to the Russian politicians or the Russian leadership that, the Greeks in Israel at the moment are being persecuted quite heavily. I think there's some something that needs to be said about this. No, it's very true. And again, we know that the biggest patrons of, you know, Orthodox holy sites in the Holy Land, Israel, Palestine, are Russian Christians, Orthodox Christians, of course. And recently, very, very recently, the Jerusalem Patriarchate property that was owned by it was stormed and seized by radical Israeli groups. This is in the Palestinian part of the old city. And the Jerusalem Patriarchate released a statement. They say, The Greek Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem condemned the storming of its land today, Tuesday, December 27th, by an Israeli radical group in Wadi Hilway of Silwan, south of the old city of Jerusalem. And basically what happened was it's like 5,000 square meters, so not like a tiny area within the city. was like cordoned off. The Israeli police helped this group, of course, and they set up security cameras so that then they could monitor it and ostensibly prosecute people who had owned it before by the Jerusalem Patriarchate for trespassing on their now acquired property i guess and it's important not just not just for general orthodox unity that i think putin be a little bit more aware of what's going on here but in many ways the jerusalem patriarchate is one of the last greek uh, patriarchates holding out in favor of the canonical ukrainian orthodox church in the schism antioch is as well but antioch in many ways has the benefit of a lot of being in syria the patriarchs in damascus they have a lot of arab influence as well the patriarch of jerusalem is very greek it's almost entirely Greek, actually, which could change and be better if they did even some Hebrew and evangelism and other things and whatnot. But it's 
They've held very strongly against the schismatics despite strong pressure from the Fanar and, of course, from, I'm sure, the State Department as one of the leading Christian figures in the Holy Land. They would love to have them on the side of, you know, U.S. interests in the region. But he's held very strongly, and I think it would be wise for Putin to take these ecclesial concerns into just as equal concern, perhaps, as some of the geopolitics, because for the people there, it really does matter. Yeah, of course. And if you keep in mind, the Jerusalem Patriarchate and the Orthodox Greeks of, of Israel have supported the, the Russian Patriarchate and have been anti-schism this entire time. So, And they've never faltered. Not, I believe not a single bishop of that church has ever sort of sided with the ecumenical patriarch or, say, some of the Ukrainian statements and things of that nature. They've been very, very much united in their front for actual Orthodox tradition and for this conservative position on Ukraine. Now, another thing I think it's, that's important to that needs to be said is the fact that um, Russians themselves have a... I guess overseas diaspora jurisdiction in Israel. It's called, uh, it's under the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, so Rokor. And you can actually check out the, the parishes themselves if you go to Mission Rokor, R-O-C-O-R dot R-U, and just check out, they have a contacts page where you can actually see the various monasteries and parishes owned by Russians, founded by, you know, Russians over a hundred years ago, the white Russians which escaped, uh, the Soviet Union and the Civil War, which, you know, essentially, all these monasteries and uh, churches were founded by the R- Russian royal family and the Russian Empire over, you know, 200 years ago, and they still stand to this day, funded by, you know, immigrants and refugees from Russia. And so these communities are more Russian than they are Greek. And what will happen when, say, the Zionist forces in Israel suddenly start sending federal agents or, you know, in their sort of task of subjugating Palestinians, what will happen when they actually start um, harassing Russian Orthodox folks? Like, on one hand, you can say, well, they're Greek Orthodox, they're different. Well, okay, what happens then? How will Putin and how will the Russian political elite react when Russians begin to, you know, actually become victims of this harassment. And as you can see from that website, missionrocor.ru, there are many Russian communities, which are, of course, they still entertain many pilgrims from Russia and Ukraine and all around the world, frankly, for that matter. And yeah, that's the great question. I think Putin does need to, despite his friendship with Netanyahu, he does, does need to put his foot down and actually you know, claim that, look, we are the protectors of Orthodox Christians around the world. This was the mission, of course, of the Russian Empire in the past, which now that you see Russians flying around yellow, black, white flags, this this was the goal of the Russian Empire, to protect Orthodox Christians internationally. Putin should pursue these ends as well. Oh, I totally agree. And this sort of, you know, these kind of interests convoluting and crossing over with each other leads us into the big, one of the other big conflicts and developments, which is Turkey meeting and Erdogan meeting with Assad and discussing things and agreeing actually to pull out of Syria entirely. And they released a joint statement. This is from Baron of the Taiga, a great friend of ours on Twitter. Turkey has agreed to withdraw occupation forces from northern Syria and reportedly come to an understanding with Damascus that, and this is a quote, the U.S. and Israel's agents, the PKK, which are the Kurds, pose the biggest threat to Syria and Turkey. And this is very big. I mean, this is Turkey, a NATO power, the second largest military in NATO after the United States. Meeting with Syria, who they had, whose lands they had 100% illegally invaded, to be fair, against the Kurds, who have also given Assad trouble. But they released this statement. And of course, Erdogan himself, as an ally of Putin, has done his best to keep Turkey neutral, for better or for worse, on the, uh, on the Ukrainian conflict, despite big pressure internally and externally in Syria. And Assad, of course, possibly Russia's biggest ally outside of Belarus. And 
they're saying this directly. Again, we said Putin congratulating Netanyahu. Meanwhile, Syria and Turkey are condemning Israel as basically foreign funders of terrorists in their lands. And of course, there have been huge amounts of terrorist attacks. Even in this past week, I believe seven people were, there were seven casualties in a big hotel explosion in Ankara, I believe, or somewhere in Turkey. And now with uh, Syria saying this directly, you're wondering if uh, if Israel and Turkey as well has ties to Israel. Azerbaijan and Israel are very close allies, and Turkey and Azerbaijan have been, are closer than ever. So this kind of demonstrates the um, the extreme, extremely convoluted tangle of alliances and webs of relationships that these leaders and these countries have, and how as things heat up in Ukraine and the violence heats up, it's kind of driving people towards one side or the other, and people are forced to make decisions. So it's really interesting. I'm not even bringing in the Caucasus and Armenia, which Armenia seems to be further and further siding with the West and Russia. For better or for worse, again, I'm I'm not I'm not so sure my take on it exactly, but they they seem to be siding more with Azerbaijan slowly but surely, and that's unfortunate for the people of Artsakh. But it's um I don't think Pashinyan is going the right making the right call there. But this whole region, you know, from from the Holy Land up to the Levant up to the Caucasus, I mean, it's a it's it's just let me they. They say, may you live in interesting times, but the people may, there may may be kind of tired of the interesting times. Yeah, that's right. These regions haven't seen peace for at least, you know, since, at least since ISIS came around in 2014, like a, just around the time of the Ukrainian conflict as well. And ISIS and, ISIS and ISIL are still around in eastern Syria, so western Iraq. So those who think that Donald Trump defeated ISIS or Russia defeated ISIS, yeah, they did actually, you know, stop quite a large cohort of, and they took many ISIS-held cities. But ISIS is definitely still around, and Syria is not entirely controlled by the um, Assad Assad government. So that should be considered. That and remember, ISIS has very deep ties to say different uh, sort of. Dark operations, you know, held by the CIA. There's, uh, there's even a museum in Moscow, frankly, uh, of the of the Syria 2017 Syrian campaign, which shows American equipment, which was somehow taken by ISIS and held by ISIS. And now these these trophies, I suppose, these trophies of the Russian war in Syria, um, the Russian peaceful intervention, shall I say, in Syria, are now being uh, displayed in Moscow. So somehow these. ISIS troops are either trained by America. There's, there's some involvement there, so it's not exactly straightforward. And that's one aspect of it that I think folks we aren't seeing today is notice Joe Biden's United States is not as involved in the Middle East as Donald Trump was. You remember Donald Trump? There was the threats of him actually pressuring Iran, him you know dropping a Moab on ISIS in Syria, you know doing all these things of Israel actually you know recognizing the Golan Heights. But Joe Biden, with his incompetence, seems to be more introverted rather than extra. And perhaps this is giving, say, people like Putin, people like Assad, and even Erdogan some breathing room to actually make arrangements and actually set up the Middle East as they see fit. Uh, of course, people like Netanyahu probably are even more stressed out by this because the only thing they're receiving, essentially, and Israel does receive mil- uh, billions of taxpayer dollars every single year, I think close to $40 billion a year, or be- between 30 and 40 at this point. But look, look, even Israel has moved to the, to the background here in comparison with the Almost, you know, almost a hundred billion that the U.S. has donated to Ukraine over the last year. So we see the the Biden presidency, in a way, is kind of having this hands-off strategy around the Middle East, and uh, powerful people, powerful actors are taking control of it. And I think people like Netanyahu, like, are kind of left here in the dark. They're really they're not given any sort of real uh, position to move on. Uh, unlike Trump, who is incredibly philo-Semitic, this Joe Biden presidency is uh, has a very particular approach to the entire Middle East situation. 
Well, actually, I think we're seeing the actualization of what the war on terror's ultimate goal was. And it started off as an anti-Islam operation justified by the nonsensical 9-11 event. And that allowed America, that allowed the deep state and, you know, the American empire to garner support for their operations overseas. This war on terror, this kind of obscure, you know, fourth weird generation of warfare where that wasn't a declaration of war, but you could do whatever you wanted because it was these disparate groups in different countries. This, it gained support among the American population. And now we've seen Islam is no longer necessarily a threat because frankly, it ever was a threat, the whole radical Islam thing was orchestrated by the CIA for a large, in a large part, not to say radical Islam isn't a real thing and that there isn't real Islamic persecution, but the war on terror was never about saving Christians in the Middle East. It was about overthrowing regimes that weren't willing to play ball with the petrodollar in the U.S. empire. And now that that's no longer run its course, Israel, for better or for worse, Islam is more organized against Israel than Christianity. So now that Islam is no longer this threat, the U.S. no longer has its overt reason to just completely fund Israel however they want. Of course, they'll always support them in the broader conflicts and always support their defense and never vote against them and always support the blatant violations of agreements and treaties that they commit. You know, they'll always receive this support in a certain degree, but now the main focus is on Christianity, frankly, and that's seen both in Ukraine and on the domestic front here in America. The war on terror has totally come home. All you hear, the military... We've talked about Milley before, the CIA. It's all about domestic terrorism. It's all about these these white people, these Christian nationalists, these people in America, these pro-Russians, perhaps. You'll hear that a lot, too. Between that and, of course, funding Ukraine, it's pretty obvious that the U.S. regime has totally turned its its gaze towards towards Christianity. And frankly, I'll just say it being a, being a type of antichrist around the world and at home, because at this point, the U.S. regime is no friend to Christians anywhere. Perhaps maybe with random schismatics or weird... Uh, Protestant restorationist cults in China that are more just about overthrowing China, but that's not, we all know that's not real Christianity. So I think it's very interesting that, that you note that, that, that the Biden regime has, is definitely not as just kind of, oh, American empire, we're doing our thing, which can almost in certain sense be viewed through an America first lens, what Trump was doing. Not exactly everything he was doing for Israel, but in some senses he was always, he didn't go to war, so he was always looking out for American interests like that. But I think it's very obvious now that Biden, has truly turned, it's, it's another sign of, of course, empire in decline, has totally turned towards the internal enemy. Yeah, that's right. And in a way, I guess the quote from Zbigniew Brzezinski, which sometimes is, you know, stated by, you know, colleagues and academics, but most of the time is forgotten when he said, when he spoke in the early 90s that communism would fall in the Soviet Union. So now the enemy of the United States and the enemy, uh, you know, I guess ideologically speaking, in Russia will become Christianity. Orthodox Christianity is the target of, of you know, our unipolar American empire. So Zbigniew Brzezinski as a sort of, uh, you know, foreign political analyst and this giant of geopolitics has already marked a target out like a, quite a while ago. And now we're finally seeing that, you know, the, the eye of Sauron is in fact turning onto, you know, Christianity, in particular Orthodox Christianity, because mind you, as Conrad said, the evangelical side of things in the US and, you know, evangelicals make up about 20, 25% of Christians in the United States with the very philo-Semitic, very pro-Israel stances, this sort of, uh, false Protestantism, which arises from who knows what exactly, like the roots are very, uh, kind of tainted and, linked to Freemasonry and what other 
you know, strange and dark, dark roots, shall we say. I think we can probably have a separate episode on the evangelical movement and its sort of implications on foreign policy. But this idea that the Protestants must unequivocally support Israel is a very new position for Christians in general. Notice how, and I guess we'll just kind of leave the Ukraine issue alone very shortly, but the idea that Christians have to be very pro-Israel and very pro-Jewish is um, wasn't held by traditional Christian Christians, not, not Catholics, not even Protestants until very recently, actually, the last 200 years. So it's very... Uh, peculiar kind of looking into this philo-Semitic position on the Protestant end in the United States and exactly where it originated. And I guess now that Christianity is in a general decline in the United States, perhaps this sort of philo-Semitism will also start, you know, going downhill. And it will see Joe Biden also, you know, not too keen on visiting Israel on a yearly basis like Trump, like perhaps with the decline of Protestantism and evangelical Christianity, so will philo-Semitism sort of maybe uh, see a slight decline or some sort of diminishing returns. Yeah, no, and it, as as you said, the people that are outspoken, there might still be people identifying as Christians that, you know, would just go along with the general American regime, you know, the abortion, the, the liberalism, all this sort of stuff. But the people that are outspoken Christians that are organizing as Christians are more and more becoming just overt enemies of, you know, the goals of the current White House, of the general, of the Democrats, and of most Republicans also, frankly. I mean, even Donald Trump is going to the log cabin Republicans. Like, it's it's really hard to find a, a politician in America that actually stands for anything traditional these days. But we're going to get into a little bit of that at the end. I want to quickly address, you know, talking about U.S. foreign policy as well and NATO and everything. Serbia, Kosovo, we had an episode about that two weeks ago. And things got very close to getting very, very hot. So there was more, a few a few skirmishes, a bit of gunfire, some things going on. But ultimately, Vucic, President Vucic, after a meeting with Patriarch Porfiry, Porfiry of uh, Serbia, the Serbian Orthodox Patriarch, who was barred from entry into Kosovo by the you know Kosovo-Albanian forces, he ultimately, despite very much hinting that there's a possibility of him going in and doing something if anything happened, he called for the takedown of the barricades that the Serbs had put up, despite for at least a day afterwards, the Serbs were like, no, we don't want to, we're going to keep going. But I believe they've now been taken down. I'm sure he's reached, again, some sort of way to delay the consequences of some of these license plate and registration issues. I'm sure he may have found some, get some concessions that could alleviate some of the anger of the Serbs in northern Kosovo. But ultimately, Vucic still just is too interested in maintaining face as a potential EU candidate. And I think... I, I, I've yet to see. I don't know yet if he's actually willing to do what is necessary in this situation. What do you think, Dimitri? Yeah, I think Vucic still uh, wants to kind of keep some chips just in case the sort of the Russian sort of scheme in the Ukraine fails and Russia does enter into this, you know, period of decline and maybe civil unrest. Say, if if Ukraine does push Russia back or Russia enters into maybe say Putin, for example, as the Western media pundits continue saying Putin say passes away, who will take the reins of leadership? So Russia. Uh, I think Vucic really holds this idea that, look, Serbia needs to look out for its own interests, and maybe at the moment it really isn't strong enough to actually, like, sort of plant its flag in, in the ancient ancient Christian lands of Kosovo, and in fact to warrant them, you know, to regain them back. But at the same time, notice he, on one hand, uh, goes for peace, on the other hand, he meets with, he kind of concedes, right, to the, to NATO, to Kosovo, to the Kosovo, um, the Kosovo politicians and, and the leadership of Kosovo. But on the other hand, he does meet with the patriarch and he does kind of show the conservative Serbians that, look, I'm still with you. I'm still your guy. I'm not a EU cuck. I'm not 
kind of going to follow along with this EU status quo. I still believe in Serbia first. I still put Serbian interest first. And at the moment, maybe it's just not in Serbia's interest to, you know, go against the K4, go against the Italian station, the NATO Italian station in Kosovo. Um, and no, mind you, like the, at the end of the day, the, the thing, the, what sort of arose this December in Serbia and Kosovo, it did end well. The police officer, the Serbian police officer, was released from Kosovo prison by the Kosovo authorities. So he was his particular detainment and his imprisonment was one of the catalysts for the conflict in the first place. Because Serbians were very angry that one of their sort of countrymen, one of their Orthodox Christian police officers, was detained. And he was, in fact, released after all these negotiations. So maybe at the end, at the end of the day, this was all like a force, a show of force that, you know, Vucic did, did just kind of show that, look, we Serbians are not not what we were in the early 2000s. We're actually willing to, you know, stand up for our rights and stand up for our countrymen inside these this artificial Kosovo, um, you know, Frankenstein's monster creation. And you know, if need be, we will overstep certain boundaries. And of course, in a way, Vucic's positive, say, uh, relations with Russia also show that look, he's seeing exactly what Russia's doing. Its operations, uh, kind of. The Nazification strategy in Ukraine is saying that, look, if the Kosovo authorities are going to implement certain genocidal cultural tactics against the people, the Orthodox Christian people of Serbia in Kosovo, then Serbia will have its own special military operation into Kosovo and they will protect the Christian people stationed there, just as Russia is protecting the Christians of Donbass and Donetsk and Lugansk. I agree. And I think in many ways, when I say Vucic doesn't, isn't prepared to do what's necessary, I agree in many ways that Go, the, the West is trying to provoke something out of Serbia for this. They would like to just kind of neutralize them, totally annihilate them again as the dominate. Still, they are still regardless the dominating power in the Balkans, the largest country, the largest economy. But at the end of the day, the only way to counter that is to take matters into your own hands and just. This is what we're seeing in Russia right now. They, they as we're seeing, as you said before, if they had taken matters into their own hands even before, they could have even been more successful and never even have gotten into this position. And so. If Sir, and who knows, the Russians may not even be willing to help, so that could be a part of it. I, I don't, I don't know the behind-the-scenes situation. But if I were Vucic, I would be talking to Hungary and Russia, you know, my two closest allies in the region, very closely, to resolve this with, you know, promises to the other to make sure that you stand by them diplomatically, militarily, and economically when they, you know, cross a border to to save the people that need that need protecting. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, it's very much in the interest of Serbia to garner and to sort of hold allies which are close to them geographically, as well as certainly um, overseas, internationally, Russia. And, you know, unfortunately for Serbia, not all of its recent neighbors, of course, are its best friends, which which is one of the reasons why economic sanctions, as well as cultural pressure from different of the various nations surrounding it could you know impact Vucic's decision making and make it just a little bit harder for him to have a sort of base position on you know, Serbian geopolitics and foreign policy. I think in general Eastern Europe, Ukraine, of course obviously, and then uh, the Balkans, they're going to be seeing the next 10 years we're going to be getting. If you're like a globe collector or a map collector, you know, we'll, you'll be getting a lot of interesting ones I think because there'll be a lot of weird borders printed for a few months or years that'll then change and everything, which is, you know, it's always, that always means interesting things are going on. But that's, that's kind of been a lot of the things, the big, the big world war three news we're going on. We're going to kind of move into our 2022 winners, losers, going to talk about a few other things. Going to of course mention Andrew Tate, Andrew and Tristan Tate arrested in Romania. I guess they're out or some sources, some Romanian sources are saying 30 days, some people are saying they're out, house arrest. I honestly don't know. 
I care only slightly just because of, you know, he at one point was associated with orthodoxy. I guess what I'll say on the record to Andrew Tate is shouldn't have converted to Islam. It wasn't the right call. Clearly, you lost some blessings there. Ops rolled up on you. But that all being said, I think, again, I'm not pro-Andrew Tate. He's somewhat of a gross character in some ways. He says some right things, of course, obviously. But I'm, I'm, I'm honest enough to admit that there's, if the powers that be were so interested in taking down human traffickers, they'd have arrested, you know, any number of other people before they suddenly arrested Andrew and Tristan Tate. So I think some might say this is a distraction. Others say, you know, they're taking down someone for speaking the truth. I, I lean more towards the distraction, perhaps, but or even more towards the deep psychological psyop with some of this weird thing I'm seeing about with, you know, of course he was interacting with Greta Thunberg and then there's these anti-human trafficking groups called Greta or whatever. And now it's, I don't know, all sorts of weird cryptic, you know, things going on, but it's, um, it's interesting of course, because Andrew Tate is strangely pushed so hard in the algorithm, which is another suspicious thing. But I think all of this going on, I, I it's definitely, has something to do with, I mean, he was in, he was in Romania, of course, as Dimitri and me were talking about earlier as a NATO country. I don't know how geopolitical the arrest was necessarily, but Andrew Tate being so relevant for such a short and condensed period of time. And then this happening, I mean, this is, there's, there's something going on. Yeah. I think there's definitely multiple angles to the Tate arrests. Uh, most importantly, I believe two days ago, funny enough, um, just on the, just after Christmas, uh, uh, Andrew Tate personally posted online that Putin is standing up against degeneracy, pedophilia, you know, Western values and all these other things, which, you know, which you guys know, but I may not need to mention. And he kind of just spoke out about that and said, look, look Russia and Putin are blessed and they're supporting Christian values. And this is a great thing. And this, he said this two days prior to his arrest. And of course, just the fact that Romania, for all its great Orthodox achievements, it, it has not been the, probably the most pro-Russian country. And in fact, we spoke uh, on the last podcast about the Moldova Transnistria issue. And Romania does have some historical, let's just say the 20th century was not a nice century towards Russian-Romanian relations. Romania actually sided against Russia in both world wars. Romania generally has a very kind of questionable position towards Russia and the Russian culture and people. It despite its, I guess, orthodox heritage and the fact that it's 95% orthodox in, in a way. So um, Andrew Tate's pro-Putin, pro-Russian positions perhaps have also put him into this, uh, into these uh, target frames, whether, whether or not he's guilty or not, which I'm probably leaning towards him not being guilty, but of course, only time will tell. And there, there is some, something needs to be said about the fact that, you know, he is mentioning, you know, touch, you know, Putin standing up against child traffic and all of that, and Romanian government has been strongly NATO, and yeah, it's just a little bit murky over there. Uh, of course, what impact this has on the media cycle is probably more impactful than the actual arrest itself, because it, it does flood the media cycle with all these memes and stories about Greta Thunberg and the Tates themselves, some of their statements, which... Uh, all in all, don't have the same impact as, say, even Zelensky's 45-minute speech, which, frankly, didn't even make the news, interestingly enough. And it was, like, incredibly uh, chauvinistic, you know, pro-Ukrainian and anti-Russian, and essentially anti-Christian as well, where he's straight-up pushing World Economic Forum values onto the Ukrainian people and saying that, look, we are going to take Crimea by force. Like, this is, you know, this is nuts. But the fact that this didn't make the news and say the Tate arrest did makes me consider that, yeah, this does look like some sort of NATO slash CIA slash, you know, just kind of this attempt to kind of fumble the end of the year and kind of shroud it all in this uh, mist of disinformation. Uh, that's my personal opinion. But I guess that early 2023 will tell us exactly what's what's been happening at the end of the day and, you know, who's guilty, who's not. And, uh, yeah, who will come out on top? 
Yeah, like you said, it's it's not to say that someone this entire story was orchestrated from the top down, but you know, the, it's we have to remember go back into the normie sphere of things. People that listen to this show, you're pretty tapped in. If you go into normie Twitter, it's just libtards dunking on Andrew Tate for getting arrested. So, it, it, as far as like the hearts and minds, it's changing the news cycle. What this means is the cultural event. It's definitely just going to be used as anti anti misogyny, you know, pro feminism, anti you know, which people just reinterpret as anti Russia because as as Dmitry said, Tate had made pro Russian statements. So I would never endorse Andrew Tate. He's kind of killed himself on the plausible deniability front from these kinds of things with you know the wimp videos of him beating young women and things like this. But again, Romania, Hungary, these countries, like these are hubs of this exploitative cam girl culture and these sorts of things. I'm, I'm in no way defending what Andrew and Tristan Tate do there because it's gross and everything. And there's a whole lot better role models in the saints of the church, I can assure you, to learn about masculinity. But there's hundreds and thousands of other pimps and horrible lowlifes and human traffickers that you could take down in these countries. You know, the timing is very suspicious. But again, talking about some of these other random things, I was going to talk about, I saw a video on Twitter, I posted about this, from a media perspective, from a media narrative perspective, Russia is just totally, has always been losing the information war from the English language perspective. As most people are not willing to either listen to our show or subscribe to a dozen Russian language telegram channels and translate everything and, you know, actually get a clear picture of everything that's going on despite, and all the counter, actually counter all the propaganda you hear every single day for the mainstream media. Most people don't have, you know, the time to do that. But uh, Johnny Miller, who's a, who has a good Twitter account, labeled Iran state-affiliated media, which I think is funny. But he uh, was interviewing some a young couple in Crimea who were able to speak some English, and they just ex- explained that they identified as Russian, that it's silly that Ukraine would think they could take Crimea. It's a Russian place. And they just said that very normally. They were normal-looking people. And this is something that – why is Johnny Miller having to do this? Why wasn't there – why are there not Russian state-affiliated camera crews doing this kinds of thing every day, just pumping this kind of English-language content or English-subtitle content? like? It's not necessarily hard. There's no absence of, of, of people that are necessarily willing to say these things. I, I just think it's, I think Russia is just very single-minded in achieving some of these goals that they're, and, and maybe it's a sign of something good that they're so genuinely, you know, focused on Russia and the Russo sphere and, and, and their own internal ideas that they're just not as concerned as, as a global empire like America is about, you know, presenting counter propaganda. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to, that it's not going to kind of help make you lose some international uh, appeal and it's not going to hurt you on other levels. Yeah. And I think this kind of leads into the segue of greatest winners and losers of 2022 and which we wanted to talk about in this sort of final uh, segment of, of the podcast episode today. And of course, one of the greatest losers was the Russian media companies, everything from Yandex to RT to, you know, the Russian channels and even TASS and, you know, all these companies being essentially these media corporations in Russia just straight up losing, being censored completely in Western countries, such as the Commonwealth countries, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and of course, Western European countries as well. And of course, you know, the United States and even some South American countries just completely being censored, unaccessible via the Internet. So Russian perspective on events has been entirely you know, subdued, I would say, in in the year of 2022. And Russians have not, as Conrad just said, have not attempted to circumvent this in any way. Um, I don't think their strategies have been ultimately very effective. One of the only places you could find Russian news kind of in an unfiltered way would be, and of course I'm not saying this news is unbiased by any means, but it would be Telegram, of course. And even Telegram is run, run by 
Pavel Durov, who is, I guess, one of the winners of 2022, Pavel Durov's um, software platform, Telegram, which is a social media, in a way, messaging platform app, has gained immense popularity for 2022 by reporting, allowing the uncensored reporting of the conflict in Ukraine and, of course, other news internationally. So Telegram has very much risen to this sort of like apex of social media in this year. And meanwhile, the traditional giants of Russian media, like such as RT, even even very positive Christian channels like Tsargrad TV have really taken a huge hit this year. Oh, yeah. And when it comes to winners, obviously, this might not come as a big surprise. I was going to say Putin. You know, some might say that he's in a more precarious position, which could be true. But generally speaking, I was going to say even we mentioned in Brazil, it doesn't look like Bolsonaro is going to be able to pull it out. And Lula is probably going to take power in Brazil, which ultimately is a win for Russia. Lula was one of the founding members of BRICS. Of course, in Libya, we're seeing the large possibility of the entire eastern part of Libya balkanizing with the leadership of Haftar, who is the Russian-backed proxy there. So, And then, and then even in Africa, D, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo has hired Wagner to fight terrorists there. Wagner is successful all across West Africa. And this is a victory for Putin, ultimately. The soft power and combined with hard power there. Their, their, their ability, frankly, to wage these proxy wars through their, through their military industrial complex and things is, has strengthened. They've maintained their alliances with China, India. They're, they're participating actively in de-dollarization. So ultimately, as long as Putin can manage to not really fumble the bag on the actual and on the ground invasion and either hold out until a substantial gain of territory or ultimately just a direct engagement NATO in the West, he, he, he will be a winner in all of this. That's no doubt, I think. No, absolutely. Putin's one of the, I guess, in a way, it's one of his, uh, I guess, points of note at the end of his career, almost as a politician, you can say, well, if Putin did turn 70 this year and, you know, uh, how many more years of you know political action before he retires does he have in him? Really, frankly, the retirement age in Russia is, I believe, 65 or 66. So it's, it is a big deal to sort of work past your retirement age, even in Russian culture. If we recall, Brezhnev for a while was considered... Up, you know, up for retirement in, during the Soviet period, and it was a huge, um, I guess, a PR PR failure for the Soviet Union actually not sending Brezhnev early into retirement. But I'm not saying Putin should retire or anything, but uh, you know, just the consideration that he's working way past work, you know, pr- proper working age and probably working very hard in Russia is, of course, a testament to his, I guess, his skill and just the way he's developed over the years. And frankly, uh, I guess one of the other great winners of 2022 would be Petra Kirill of Moscow and all of Russia and the entirety of the Russian church. I think the Russian church reaching the number of 400 for number of bishops this year has been, you know, foundational. There hasn't been a church since probably the fall of Constantinople or even the Muslim conquest, which has held a total number of 400 bishops in one jurisdiction. So for over 1,500 years, if not, you know, about that much, I would say, no, since the Great Schism, perhaps even, there hasn't been this many bishops in all the Orthodox Church in one jurisdiction. Patriarch Kirill reaching this round number of 400 is, I think, a huge achievement for the Russian Church, despite all the conflicts, of course, in Ukraine and overseas as well. Issues in you know jurisdictions such as South Korea, Japan, and other places overseas, just having to sort of deal with this uh, you know soft power from the West against Orthodox Christianity. Patriarch Kirill has done his best, even despite being personally sanctioned by the United Kingdom and things like that. You know, absurd sort of actions by Western powers. Patriot Kirill has held out his own, and even if he doesn't have many more years of service in him, he has already done such a foundational and 
tenth amount task. And 2022 would be a, a year of his triumph, I think, despite everything, all the shortcomings and all the difficulties. Well, I think that ultimately, I believe that this military conflict will ultimately be seen as a big catalyst to the end of the schism as well. And that'll ultimately be seen as a big, big, big victory. And uh, some other winners I want to say, I think Keith Woods and Joel Davis are big winners of 2022 are kind of going to ape some of their opinions on this. They did a good podcast, one of their episodes of The Boys, which I would encourage everybody to listen to. But as uh, Joel and Keith, they said, I think Nick Fuentes was a big winner, you know, kind of taking America first and bringing Ye along and getting this new platform for these ideas. And, you know, at the end of the year, they laid a little low the holiday season and everything. We're going to be keeping up with that. But along with that, another... In, in the same relationship to that, I would say Donald Trump so far. Unfortunately, 22 was a losing year for Trump, and I don't say that with any joy. I was, of course, a huge Trump supporter 2016, 2020, and I'll always in some sense be grateful to what for what Donald Trump did for this country and how he kind of brought so many people outside of the mainstream left-right dialectic of politics. But I think ultimately between his terrible announcement speech, the unfortunate midterm uh, results, and then generally also the unfortunate the stuff people going after him in January 6th commission, all this stuff, you know, he's been resorted to selling NFTs. He's generally just starting to finally, the biggest problem for Trump would be fading into irrelevance. And unfortunately for the first time since he went down that golden escalator in 2015, it's starting to look like he's not quite the most relevant thing anymore. And for Trump, that's, that's just a disaster. And for him, you know, I don't know if he realizes that or not, but if he, if he can't turn that around, it's not going to be a good election cycle for him in 2024. Another winner, I think, is Ramzan Kadyrov. I think the Mm -hmm. Chechen leader is a big, uh, would be considered a big winner. He's been able to really up his, up his power level, his clout, I think, within Russia. He's, he's able to just casually talk about, he's, he's joking and saying he's not serious, but running for the presidency for the Russian Federation and these sorts of things, (laughs) which is pretty funny. And of course, Erdogan, I think for 2022 was, was, was a big winner. However, 2023 could not be as good for him. Again, we has, he's got a tough election coming up. He's really not necessarily favored by the powers that be right now. If NATO would love to have someone controlling that big army, that's much more, you know, just in line with their vision of globalism and the goal of NATO and its anti-Russian stance. So we're going to be watching that very closely. But uh, with all of that, uh, we're probably going to start to wrap this thing up. Uh, Dimitri, is there anything that you, any other winners, losers, anything you want to bring up about the war, about uh, the persecution of the church before we, before we kind of send everyone away for 2022 and usher in the new year? Yeah, I think just a sort of a, on a personal note, um, we we do commit memory eternal to you know Daria Dugin, uh, of course, who was killed in a terrorist action in 22. Probably the biggest tragedy, I'd say, besides the killing of, a lot, of course, a lot of Orthodox clergy in the Ukraine and many even innocent civilians, just laity of the Christian, Orthodox Christian Church. And all those innocents who suffered from Zelensky as well as this conflict in general of eight years, I think there'll, there'll be a lot more sacrifices and a lot more victims of injustice. But, of course, it's absolutely disgusting that the Ukrainian special forces would um, attack uh, innocent civilians like that in su- such a fashion. It's just the you know terrorism is never never an option. I don't think so. It should be completely condemned. And you know, uh, of course, Dugin himself was a big winner because not only did he rise to intense popularity in Russia and overseas, he stood strong despite the 
assassination of his daughter. And of course, he continues to have enormous relevance, both among the Orthodox Christian clergy, with whom he now has direct relations with. He meets up with metropolitans, archbishops, even the patriarch knows him personally now, and the Russian Orthodox billionaires as well. So Dugin is in the spotlight. And hopefully, God willing, he remains strong and keeps providing us that great content that you know he has been doing for the last 10 years. No, and I think in general, um, while orthodoxy, it's been a tough year in general for the church. We're facing a lot of a lot of persecution, and there's division, and everything. In many ways, you know, some say the light's always the dark. The night's always the darkest before the dawn. And in many ways, though, persecution breeds some of the some of the greatest times in the church. So I think as we're experiencing this right now, we may be 2023, 2024. Who knows how soon? But we may be on the threshold of another great, you know, growth and expansion of orthodoxy and the gospel around the world. And uh, with all that being said, we want to tell everybody to please subscribe to our Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. We have some fantastic guests lined up for 2023, some people that you're, you couldn't even guess. Like these things, these guests are crazier than you could even imagine. We're going to have some big, some big people on, some, some of your favorites, some people you may not have heard of that are going to be just bringing a great perspective to, to geopolitics, to you know, theopolitics, as some people might say our show is about. So be sure to subscribe to our Substack to never miss an article, an episode of the show. Subscribe to us on YouTube, World War Now. Like, subscribe, comment. All of that really helps us out. Uh, share it with your friends. We love, we haven't heard any complaints about anyone that sent the show to their friends and family. Everyone is intrigued by this long-form content, I guess, that we provide. And follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore. Follow Dimitri, Ocanonist. Follow me, Gnomrad. Uh, follow us on Telegram, World War Now Telly. Uh, we've got content there all the time, all day, every day. And uh, yeah, it's been, uh, we had a great holiday season. Again, we hope all of you on the old calendar are having a, preparing to celebrate the Nativity of Christ, and that beautiful, beautiful celebration as we then prepare. It's, it'll be Lent before we know it, prepare for the celebration of Christ's resurrection in 2023. So again, we want to thank everybody for your support. This was a fantastic year, the first year of World War Now. We're hoping for many, many more. And uh, I'm Conrad, of course. I thank everybody for, for everything. It really means a lot. This year was fantastic. And I'll let Dimitri send us off. Of course. Merry Christmas, everybody. Have a happy new year. This is O-Canonist Dimitri Kalyagin signing off for World War Now on, on the final episode of the year 2022. We wish everybody a fantastic, spiritual, fruitful, and, of course, uh, happy and wholesome 2023.